Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And Caleb's here too, along for the ride. And welcome to our second part in our series on the War of 1812. Now, last time we focused on Tecumseh, right, Caleb, the Shawnee leader. Yeah, and Tecumseh, he had a famous brother who was a Native American prophet, and he starts to draw a lot of attention to himself and get a lot of followers, and he he has this idea of starting a unified nation of all the indigenous people, and this becomes really popular. They have a mild setback. William Henry Harrison ends up instigating a battle at Tippecanoe, and Prophetstown is burned while Tecumseh is away. And he gets into a big scuffle with his brother, but then these kind of ominous natural signs occur. A comet appears in the sky, and a great earthquake happens in the eastern United States. Uh, We don't have time to go into details, but you can re-listen to our previous episode if you want to catch up on a refresher. But anyway, after all this happens, Tecumseh is here picking up the pieces, and his scattered followers that were... uh, dissipated from the previous battle are now starting to rejoin him based on these new um, natural or they believed supernatural signs they saw him as the leader that was finally going to stand up to the uh, European powers but in the context of all this we still got to deal with what mainly caused the war and that was the British and Americans continuing to butt heads with each other so I guess you could say they were butt heads uh, A lot of people in this story are buttheads, Caleb, yes. Uh, The American government was accusing the United Kingdom of seizing their ships and stealing their soldiers. And then another grievance on top of that was they were complaining that uh, these Indian agents were bribing these Western tribes and nations to attack American settlements that were there illegally. Yeah, Andrew, there's actually a lot of politicians in Washington, and they're Kind of going by the old saying, uh, never let a huge disaster go to waste. So they're going to take these trespasses that the British government are doing in impressing soldiers and also all this tension with the Western and Northern Indian nations, and they decide to say, hey, a, a war would probably solve this. And a lot of the people pushing for this was... Uh, a branch of politicians known as the Warhawks, which were a subgroup of the Democratic Republicans, uh, mainly Thomas Jefferson's political party. Yeah, and a lot of uh, grizzled old revolutionary war veterans that felt like the first war didn't quite go far enough for what they wanted. We need to finish and get our real independence from Britain and not be uh, sequestered on this side of the continent. And although acquiring more land was not the cause or reason for the war... Uh, Like Caleb alluded to, many saw this conflict as a wonderful opportunity to perhaps expand the United States and, who knows, maybe even conquer Canada. Even former President Jefferson was in favor of this. He wrote to a friend, quote, Upon the whole, I have known of no war entered into under more favorable circumstances. We shall strip Great Britain of all her possessions on this continent. And Of course, just like at the beginning of every war, people think it's going to be a piece of cake. Isn't that what they said at the beginning of uh, World War I, the Civil War, the American Revolution? Isn't that what they always say? Mm -hmm. Spanish-American War, although that one really was a piece of cake. Great Britain was kind of already at a disadvantage. You see, they had very few armed forces here in North America. Most of the British Army and even Navy was tied up all around the world fighting Napoleon in Asia and India and Africa and, of course, Europe. 
So with Congress officially declaring war, the message and the news spread like wildfire across the American continent. Well, that is, unless you were a general commanding 2,200 men in the backwoods of the Great Lakes. Yeah, uh, Fort Detroit and the Great Lakes is pretty far inland from the ocean, and uh, lines of communication don't get there quite as quickly, so this this General Hull didn't know anything about it. But word had reached the Canadian General Brock before the American General Hull. And Brock, he was kind of a really uh, fiery warrior in the sense that uh, he appeared not to be afraid of anything, and he jumped right into planning an attack on an American fort called, uh, and you know, this is one of those words that uh, sound, or doesn't read like it sounds. It looks like Mackinac, but Andrew just corrected me and said it's uh, Mackinac. 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 You ignore the C. French. Yeah, should have taken some French in high school. Anyway, uh, the, the Canadian general, Brock, he goes up and he sends some um, indigenous Indians and also uh, a few redcoats up, and he takes this American fort with only 60 warriors in it, and this starts to bolster his men, and he's starting to think, hey, if we can take this fort, let's take some more. Let's, let's aim for bigger fish. Uh, general Brock, he starts to draw up plans for something, Andrew, truly insane. How insane? Well, let's just say this. This plan, if it succeeds, it would make him a Canadian national hero. Despite the fact that the American forces under his counterpart, American General William Hull, were heavily fortified around the Fort Detroit area with over 2,500 men, he decided he would go and try and kick them out. Okay, that sounds like something that a general would do. Yeah, how, how big was Brock's army? Well, that's the thing. He didn't really have an army. At the time, Brock only had a hundred redcoats under his command. So that's that's significantly less than twenty five hundred. <laughs> yes, it is attacking a fortified position. But he also had the promise of Chief Tecumseh to join him in battle. Meanwhile, back in Detroit, the old Revolutionary War general William Hull was sitting down dining with his daughters and granddaughters. Wait, he brought his his daughters and his granddaughters on campaign to a wilderness fort? Well, you see, Andrew, he was so confident in the security of the fort, and like you said, war hadn't officially been declared yet, and he must have known that that war was coming because he was drawing up plans to invade Canada, so it wasn't that big of a secret. But he'd brought most of his extended family along, including his little granddaughter. So he was preparing a siege for the British fort Amherst, But rumors had told him that Brock was massing a huge force to counter him. So he decided to stay close to Detroit instead. Because, you know, if if you hear there's some wily Canadian out there getting a whole bunch of lumberjacks to come after you, best to stay near the fort. Some of Hull's officers, though, they didn't see this as being, you know, really a smart move. They saw it as being more of a cowardly move. And they start secretly talking about removing him from his command. You know, he, he's pretty old at this point, and they probably look at him as the senile old has-been from the American Revolution. Well, he should still be fine, because Brock, I mean, what does he have? Dozens, literally dozens of men? Yeah, he literally has dozens of men by now. Okay, so he actually has more than dozens. He has his hundred redcoats that we mentioned, and over the, the, the weeks as he's preparing, he's able to round up 300 militia. But that's still 400 to 2,500. Yes, but he's marching to meet Tecumseh. In early August 1812, 
General Brock arrives at the outskirts of Fort Detroit with his 400 men and an additional 200 Indian warriors under the command of Chief Tecumseh. On August 15th, Brock begins a bombardment on the Americans inside the fort. The bombardment doesn't really accomplish much, so Andrew, you know, we're talking earthworks, and this is this fort's been there a while because you know it was in the last war, so it's, it's and been, the British gave it back, I think, in 1796. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty beefed up fort, and the cannons don't take a huge effect. But again, we're talking now 600 against 2,500 with them being in the uh, fortified position. Yeah, it makes you think, why didn't General Hull just <laughs> bring his men out and attack them while they're there outside the fort? The problem is General Hull doesn't realize how few men there are. And that is to the credit of General Brock. Yeah, wouldn't the sentries just be able to give him an accurate report? Well, General Brock had a few tricks up his sleeve. In order to trick the Americans into believing he had more men than he actually had, Brock made some, we'll call them, minor changes to the day-to-day routine of his men. Firstly, he told his troops that no more lighting one fire per, uh, you know, group. From now on, every single person in this camp is going to light their own cooking fire. This will obviously give an illusion of a much bigger army. But, you know, lots of people have done things like that in the past, Andrew. You know, he probably read this somewhere. But he also had his troops march in plain sight of Fort Detroit. That seems rather stupid because then they're going to know exactly how many people there are. But here's what he did, though, Andrew. He had his, you know, 600 men walk by the fort in a straight line heading towards the woods. And then as soon as the men that were in the front of the column reached the woods, they would sprint in a huge loop around through the woods and join the tail end of the column so you could just make the column go on forever and look like it was just this huge mass of thousands upon thousands of men marching through. And when I read this, you know, Andrew and I, we just started laughing because we we filmed a little movie years ago when we were younger, and we had about five people to film this war scene, and we did a very similar uh, thing for recording. (laughs) As we'd walk by the camera, we'd quickly change his shirt or change his sword to his spear and just keep looping around to make it look like we had 30 people, when in reality it was five of us. Anyway, what else did he do, Andrew, that was uh, kind of a, a tricky... Well, he did the same technique for meals. He would have people go to stand in the meal line and pretend to get their food and then have them walk out of sight and then have it get back in line. So it made it seem like more people were just constantly coming out of the woods to get more food. So whenever these scouts and sentries were out, they just saw all kinds of activity all the time and they couldn't get an accurate number on how many people there actually were. And Brock was even giving the militia and Tecumseh's men red coats. They brought tons of extras just to give it the illusion that there were even more highly trained soldiers than there really were. Tecumseh also decides to use his own little bit of psychological warfare. And what he does is he and his men keep the Americans up all night long with scary war cries and screams in the middle of the night so nobody can get a good night's sleep. So they were taking shifts howling and chanting to, again, make it seem like there were more uh, native peoples there than there actually were. As the sun rises, Brock sent a message to Hull that included an unmistakable threat of massacre. Quote, The force at my disposal authorizes me to require of you the immediate surrender of Fort Detroit. It is far from my intention to join in war of extermination, but you must be aware 
The numerous body of Indians that have attached themselves to my troop will be beyond control the moment the contest commences. Yeah, that's a little of a implied do. Some generals have looked back in history and called Hull a coward. And that was my initial reaction when I read about him, too. I was just like, why can't this guy just try to hold out for yeah. a little bit? What's what's his deal? But Brock's plan worked better than he had hoped. General Hull fell into a deep depression, locking himself in his room. He felt like he lost all hope in holding out against the forces he seemed like there were thousands of them. Tecumseh was here, and everybody had been hearing about him as being this great, violent warrior, uh, hearing the Indian cries, and looking down into the eyes of his granddaughter and his daughters that were there with him. And uh, so he starts to talk about surrender. And instantly, Andrew, all of his junior officers start talking about, hey, we need to cause a mutiny and throw this guy in jail as a traitor because he's going to surrender the fort. But he has just enough authority, most likely because of his strong Revolutionary War credentials. You know, he's a pretty well-respected guy. And so he walks out and he orders them to raise the white flag of surrender. He sent messengers to to Brock asking for uh, three days to agree on terms, you know, figures, you know, uh, I'll surrender, but let's let's talk about this. You know, are you going to give me... uh, You're going to give me honors of war and let us march out with our weapons. And Brock simply replies that he would give him three hours. Man, Brock is really, he's playing that that bluff strong, isn't he? (laughs) Yes, he is. Hull surrenders his entire force along with the 39 cannons, 2,500 muskets. That's like a musket for every person. Yep. Two large detachments of men. The surrender of Hull's army was a great victory for the Canadians, British, and Indian Alliance. Really? You think? Without any casualties on either side? The defeat completely stalled any attempt the U.S. could make on invading Canada. Brock emerged as a great hero. Tecumseh's influence grew even more, and more Indians flocked to him. Meanwhile, General William Hall returned home in shame, and he was court-martialed and sentenced to death. Ouch. But, due to his honorable service in the American Revolution, he was pardoned by President James Madison. So, they were never really going to kill him. They just wanted to make a statement and let him live out in shame, pretty much. Yeah. Which, eh. You know, once you're a parent, you can kind of picture why he was so scared to see his grandchildren and daughters massacred. But I will point out, that's why you don't bring them on war campaign with you. With this win, the U.S. and the British authorities had a lot of correspondence going back and forth across the bodies of water, and they made a temporary ceasefire. But instead of this kind of just being a quick end to the war, it just caused the two sides to really ramp up their forces on each side of the border to regroup and then try and take up the fight again in a different location. And that's what was happening back in the East. Especially people in New England and New York were really dreaming about an easy invasion into Canada. And maybe we can't invade Canada from across Detroit, but, you know, we could definitely do it from Niagara and the St. Lawrence River. And if they capture Canada, this would hopefully be a a quick and easy way to end the war. Because up in Canada, 
you know, a lot of them are French or American migrants, and they don't like the British at all, so probably half of them will switch sides anyway. And then we'll, we'll have a whole continent to ourselves. In October of 1812, a group of New York militia tried to move in and occupy Mohawk territory. And we, we are talking about the Iroquois here, so I thought that we should probably start bringing them more into the war. How do you think the Americans did as they entered uh, the Mohawk region? Bad? Bad. Badly? Badly. <laughs> poorly. It's poorly, I believe, is the correct term. They were repelled. But the Mohawks are thinking, okay, now we can have our independence and people can leave us the heck alone. But then a force of Canadians move into the community to uh, protect them. But really what's happening here is this uh, area known as Akwesasne is this odd Mohawk piece of Mohawk land. To this day, it sits right on the border between Canada and New York, and even a little bit of it is in the province of Quebec and Ontario. And so it's, even to this day, a horribly divided community that has to deal with all these international borders, even though they're one autonomous nation-state straddled between this area. And even back then, you see these Americans and Canadians coming back and forth trying to... Uh, occupy the area to make sure that the native peoples don't side with one person or the other. So the Americans return later the following month, and they kick out the Canadians, and they told the people that lived there that they're going to burn the whole village to the ground if any of them side with the British during the war. And then they proceed to build a blockhouse to keep an eye on things. And just like in all the wars we've seen, going back the last 200 years, the Mohawks don't fall into any neat little package. They formed three different groups. One group of people were pro-British, and another party is really pro-American. And the rest of them, and I probably think the majority, were just, leave us the heck alone, we don't care about your stupid war. I think that was probably the largest faction. But now we have to go all the way down to the other end of Lake Ontario and talk about probably one of the most famous battles of uh, the Great Lakes region during the war, and that would be at Queenston Heights. The Americans got a, uh, a new general leader, a guy named Stephen Van Rensselaer. He was a militiaman who was probably one of the wealthiest American citizens, and this uh, ceasefire had temporarily allowed him to gather forces and take them overland from Albany to Upper Canada. And remember, when we say Upper Canada, we're talking about elevation. It's actually southern Ontario. And Brock hears about this, and he's still all the way over in Detroit, and he has to march all the way across the southern peninsula foot of Ontario to get back here to see what the Americans are up to. And so just before the Americans start to uh, go through with their plan, Brock is just outside of Fort George. On the Canadian side of the river? On the Canadian side of the river, yeah. If you were to look at Fort Niagara, it's, it's just kitty corner down. Brock and his uh, other generals there have about 1,500 soldiers and about 250 uh, Aboriginal allies. But they're kind of spread out because they're not really sure where the Americans are going to cross the Niagara River. Meanwhile, uh, Van Rensselaer is really under pressure from Washington and the, the American Court of Public Opinion because they really need to have a good victory here because after the debacle at Detroit, they need something that's really going to relaunch American morale. Are you a fan of Roman history, Caleb? Yes, yes, I am. 
what is the one thing that these great big pompous rich Romans always wanted to do once they already had all the power and all the money? Become famous war generals? They always wanted to become famous war generals, and it rarely worked out well for them. And this is going to be another case. Uh, He really wanted to get some feathers in his cap and be a great renowned war general. And so he's really trying to get this grand plan to invade all of uh, Upper Canada from New York. At the time, it was uh, still very common if you were rich and you put together your own army, uh, you could just appoint yourself the general. You know, if, if you raised your own militia army, you could make yourself the head of that army. And not only make yourself the head of the army, draw up your own invasion plans. And so that's what leads him to the Niagara River. On October 13th, 1812, a whole bunch of American forces are on the New York side of the river, just uh, in modern-day Lewiston, which is just north of the Seneca Buffalo Creek Reservation. And they tried to cross over to a place on the Canadian side called Queenston Heights. Uh, if you want to put that on a map, it's about halfway between Fort Niagara and uh, there's, there's some waterfall up that way, too. Anyway, not, it's, not the Niagara one, though. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the one. That's a big one, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess it is kind of big. You're right. Since it is such a big waterfall, it's not really an easy place to travel across the Niagara River because you've got all these spinning currents and uh, <laughs> rapids. And For those of you that have never been to Niagara Falls, because Andrew and I, we live pretty close to it, it is awe-inspiring. Massive. You stand there, and the first thing that comes to, to my head when I stand there is, please, oh, please don't fall in. Because you just get swept down those currents through rapids over waterfalls. It's very frightening. And also, uh, apparently, I'm not sure if you've heard this, Andrew, but it's turned down now. Like, they have all sorts of dams and things like that. They have canals that, like, suck some of the water away and put it other places to go around the falls. So, (laughs) if you look at it now and you're all inspired, just think of what it must have looked like 200 years ago. Yeah, so the Niagara River is not easy to cross In fact, the Americans had to try twice just to get to the other side. General Brock is over here listening, and he's hearing about the situation, and he thought that, all right, they tried to cross and they went back. It must be a diversion. They're they're trying to land somewhere else, and this is just the decoy group of boats. So keep an eye out. Where are they going to land? But it really was the place that they were trying to land. And things started out really well for the invading Americans. They finally get across. And as luck would have it, they're at a landing, but they find a path up to the top of the cliffs. And again, if you've got to go to the Niagara Gorge, it's it's massive. I don't even know how high the walls are. They've got to be 100 feet in some areas plus. It's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And so they find this path to get up to the top of the cliffs. And soon they overwhelm a, an artillery battery that's sitting there and supposedly guarding the river. But now... They've already got a foothold. General Brock starts hearing guns going off, so he's like, oh crap, that's really where they're landing. So he gathers his men, and remember, they're really spread out all over the area, and so they head south for the action. But it's going to take them a while to get there because they're still several miles away. He's really starting to worry that by the time he assembles enough forces, the whole southern area might be overrun with Americans. Uh, The main guy who was commanding the, the Sally Inn was uh, Colonel Winfield Scott. That name before, can't imagine where. And he was really pushing forward and in taking care of the cannons, and they were really starting to uh, press onward. But then they suddenly find themselves pinned down by huge amounts of rapid sniper fire. But it wasn't the British firing at them. Norton 
had arrived. Oh yeah, we talked about him last time, didn't we? Norton was the adopted son of Joseph Brandt and the next generations of great war chiefs for the Mohawk. Norton is there with John Brandt, Joseph Brandt's other son, and they've rallied 80 men from the Grand River Reserve. That's the Haldeman Tract area natives that were living there on the Six Nations land. And they had decided to come east to help repel this invasion. And they're hiding in the woods, and they're firing their shots, calling out these war chants, and it just starts terrifying the Americans, and they just become petrified with fear and become overly cautious, and they just stop dead in their tracks, unable to advance. Yeah, you have to remember, these are not only militia, but they're militia that were uh, pulled together by some really rich dude. So, Andrew, the U.S. soldiers tried to fight back, but shooting downhill is really easy. Shooting uphill is, is not the the best and the, the bullets just overshot all their uh, all the Iroquoian warriors you got to remember these these soldiers they're not they're not real soldiers I'm sorry if, if there's any of these guys still alive I don't mean to say they're not real soldiers but you know Van Rensselaer he just basically paid these guys gave them a gun and said join my army I'm rich and I'll pay you well and they all said cool I don't have anything better to do now the fighting's starting and they're taking forever to reload their muskets meanwhile mist is coming up from the Niagara River and making all the powder moist and nobody can uh, replace their flints and they're all saying oh, I want to go home but what's amazing Andrew is the Iroquois warriors shortly after the the battle started most of them left so there was only about 40 snipers holding back this force of a thousand Americans <laughs> Even though eventually I, we can assume, hope, I don't know, that these thousand Americans would overwhelm these 40 Iroquois warriors, but it's stalling them long enough for General Brock and his forces to be racing up from behind to catch up. And Brock, I mean, man, what a dreamboat. What an amazing general just from the stuff we've seen so far. He always calculates things so well and takes bold risks and it and it just always pays off for him. So he comes charging into battle on a horse with his sword drawn and then he gets sh- what? He gets shot? I kind of picture it like in Mulan when uh, you know the the Mongolian guy goes right up to her and you know he's like 2 feet away from Mulan with the cannon but the cannon actually hit him and General Brock gets shot right through the chest and is killed almost instantly. And then Brock's lieutenant colonel, who's with him, also gets hit, and he's mortally wounded. And now, finally, reinforcements from Fort George are arriving. But an interesting note about these companies is one of them was a corps of colored troops. Uh, These were a whole unit of indentured servants and freemen. And so you have this Iroquois, black, Canadian, British, United Army coming together to repel this invasion. And soon, another 800 men are added into this uh, Canadian conglomeration. At this point, uh, General Van Rensselaer decides, you know, I think I'm needed on the other side of the river. And so he crosses back to Lewiston to try and um, gather reinforcements and supplies. I'm not trying to make him sound like a coward. He really was going back to get more men to reinforce the position. But... When the men saw him leaving, (laughs) they rushed his boat and nearly capsized it. And then when he finally fought them off to get back to the New York side at Lewiston, his troops were so disorganized and they heard the the Iroquois war whoops coming from across the river. And they said, I'm not going across. 
And then he tried to get his uh, hired boatmen to cross back over to at least pick up the hundreds of Americans that were still bogged down at Queenston. But they said, yeah, um, we're not getting paid enough to do this. We're not, we're not crossing back. <laughs> you, you might be the richest guy in America. You don't have enough money to get us to go back over there. And so the British and Iroquois advance on the Americans... And they, the Americans haven't really even had time to set up trench lines or make any kind of defense or anything like that. And so they start withdrawing. But where are they, Caleb? What's the terrain that they have to their backs? Cliff, they gorge, got a freaking, river. <laughs> they got a cliff and a river. And so to fall back, it's not really possible. They, they throw up some makeshift barricades with some uh, fence rails But the British slowly and methodically move forward. They draw battle plans. They get everything ready. And then they counterattack at 4 p.m., 12 hours after this battle had started when the Americans crossed. They send in the pawns. And by pawns, I mean the colored troops and uh, Brant's Iroquois men. Because of course they did. They fought bravely and fought well to defend the soil. Uh, The Iroquois charged against the riflemen on the Americans' right flank. And after they fired a volley, they fixed bayonets, and they totally charged, and the the Americans just melted away. They fell back. The Americans fired one volley at the British lines, but then the Iroquois countered with a war whoop and totally charged in. Hearing the Mohawks crying out, it was just a total disorganized retreat to the river. They found themselves backed up at the edge of a cliff. One of the American generals a guy named Wadsworth, surrendered right there at the edge with 300 men. He's like, nothing else we can do. We remember General Scott's also on this side, and he gives orders to uh, surrender to the British. But the first two men he sends out to try and surrender get killed by some of Norton's men who are just in a frenzy. And General Scott furiously begin to wave white cloths to get the Iroquois who were firing at him to let them know that they're trying to surrender. And the whole thing just turns into a total and absolute cluster something. It was a complete, unmitigated disaster for the Americans. We cannot stress this enough. Before the battle, Van Rensselaer had about 3,500 men. And here's the casualty total. 100 killed and 170 wounded. And you think, okay, well, that's, that's, that's a high number, but it's, it's not a huge amount of the army. But then it gets much more eye-opening when you look at the number of captured, 835. So a third of his entire army was killed or captured. And that number is only because not everybody crossed the river. Almost every person who went across the Niagara never made it back. And then it looks even more lopsided when you look at the British and their allies' numbers. 21 killed, 85 wounded, and they had 22 captured. Losses from the Six Nations were two killed from the Oneida, one from the Onondaga, two from the Cayuga, and uh, John Norton was uh, slightly wounded, and one of the war chiefs was captured. But after uh, this battle, he was given back in a prisoner exchange for some American POWs. So how do you think this went over for Van Rensselaer? I'm just picturing uh, the Warhawks and the politicians in Washington just hoping for a small victory somewhere, something that they can see, look, we're still winning. And when word of this gets back, it's probably not going to go over very well. Yeah, it was the end of uh, Van Rensselaer's career. He resigned from the American army. Meanwhile, on the British side, there was a massive funeral made for uh, British General Brock. 
And the six nations, all of them, attended in large numbers and did a, a condolence ceremony. And as a result of this, Norton was promoted to a new position, the captain of the Confederate Indians. So it worked out very well for him. But as Caleb said, Brock just turns into this living legend, or I guess dead legend. Um, (laughs) Have you been to his obelisk at Queenston Heights? I have not. I've been inside it. The thing is massive. And I didn't go, you can actually go to the top of it, but I had small kids at the time and didn't want to make those hundreds of steps. But it's just a massive obelisk in this park. Brock is very well known in Canada. (laughs) Let's put it mildly. That's what we have for today. And next time we'll talk more about the, uh, the war as it goes between the Six Nations and the Americans and the British. And there's going to be a, a lot more fun things, but hopefully we'll try and finish it up next week because uh, a lot happens, but we're going to try and keep it Iroquois-centric. For those of you that have joined the Wild Sweet Potato Clan and gotten your cool clan cup, congratulations. Um, we have just about run out of them. So we're, we're putting the kibosh on sending those out. But I will say this. if We do have a couple left, and if you had messaged us before now and not received one, I might have just enough to get a couple more out. Um, but if you decide to be kind to us, and even without getting the gift of a free Iroquois uh, Wild Sweet Potato Clan Cup, and you want to help us out since we produce this free show, you'll notice there's no cheesy commercials in it, unless it's like a an April Fool's Day episode or something like that. But if you do want to help us out, please go on iTunes and, and write us a nice five-star review. That's all we ask. So thank you very much, folks, and we will see you next time for part three of our war series. Bye, everybody.